Welcome, everybody. We have another podcast coming your way. And, of course, it's brought to you by Ameren, Illinois, certainly Munganaz Acura and Automotive Group. Munganaz St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. Munganass St. Louis Acura would like to extend a huge thank you to our healthcare workers and first responders by offering them several service specials, including a free interior detail cleaning. You can call them today to make your appointment and let them help you while you are helping our community. Find them online at stlouisacura.com or give them a call 314-822-2872 for Munganass St. Louis Acura. We love talking to the president and chairman of Ameren, Illinois. He is Richard Mark. Emergency Operations Center acts as kind of a central command center, and everything is dictated from there. They tell the crews that are out in the field where to go, where the main breakers are to go to to de-energize the line, and then they verify that that line is closed, and they're able to tell five, six, seven hundred people that are working out in the field exactly where to go to make the proper repairs to get our system back on in a storm situation. I'm Mike Claiborne, and as always, we love talking about the last dance. And this is the last one, so to say, as we visit with Clarence Gaines, the assistant general manager for the Chicago Bulls during that incredible run. Well, Clarence, um, the, the show is in the books. The response has been incredible. The conversation has been just incredible as well. Uh, so I just want to get into a couple of things right off the bat. Uh, there's a lot okay. of people that I've come to appreciate and, and knowing them, maybe not as well as you knew them, but there were some people who I came across with greater appreciation in being able to to do things. And I'm going to start off with Phil Jackson, uh, a person you've known for a long time. You were with him in Chicago. You were with him in New York. Uh, you You have a great relationship with him. Give me your thoughts on him as you know him, because there were so many things about this, his patience, his ability to motivate, his ability to unite and his ability to get in somebody's ass when needed. And in that one time out in the last episode, uh, you know, Phil was pretty raw about how he felt that they needed to do some things better. Uh, so give me your thoughts on, on your your impression and your relationship with Phil Jackson. Well, Phil is uh, the consummate leader. And, um, you know, when you look at that one episode when Phil getting in his ass, he's got this, uh, uh, people think of him just from terms of the, the intellectual, the Zen aspect of him, but he is a fierce competitor. And that came out in uh, that little segment in Indiana, basically get your asses in gear and play to the level that you basically have been taught. But he's a guy, as I said in an earlier episode, you know, there are two types of leadership styles. You can be transactional and you can be transformative. And in Phil's case, he's very much a transformative leader in that he wants to impact you holistically, the whole person. And that showed through and through, um, 
throughout this series, and it manifested itself in uh, the performance of the team and their ability to be able to do things on their own. He wanted to empower him players. You know, he had uh, this line from uh, Adolf Rupp uh, that uh, he came out with, and then there's there's two type of coaches Adolf Rupp said. I know you can't believe I'm quoting Adolf Rupp. <laughs> yeah, well, I was. <laughs> this is a far cry, but uh, you know what? Anything goes in this day of communication. So you you roll it on out there. Yeah, but Adolf Rupp said this about coaches: they are coaches who lead teams, and they are coaches who drive teams. Doug Collins was a type of coach who drove a team, and if you drive a team, it's a it's an accepted style. Obviously, you can get a lot out of a team over a short period of time. But I think if for you to endure, especially endure uh, in terms of playing at this level and being able to not only play at this level, but to win championships at this level, you've got to be able to lead teams. And that's what Phil did in terms of his style of philosophy of life, philosophy of coaching. He's able to bring all that to four and lead this team to a greater place. Uh, I think Michael kind of said it at best in terms of he was able to knit us together into a brotherhood. You know, and he didn't say it exactly that way, but that was the significance of what he said. And not, not everybody c- can do that in terms of getting that feeling uh, across and uh, where everybody's in it for the group. And I want to, you know, I'm going to go full circle here now that you brought Adolph Rupp into the conversation. Uh, one of his disciples, Pat Riley, who I think was a guy who drove teams, especially the ones in L.A., which is what I think what happens when you drive a team, at some point the message gets old. At some point there's no more ability to motivate and get guys focused. And I thought that was part of his demise in L.A. He kind of reinvents himself and going to Miami. Uh, and puts that thing together, but was smart enough to know he had X amount of speeches that he could convey to get the most out of his players. Let's go upstairs and find somebody else to do this because I'll put a team together who knows what it's going to, I'll know what it takes to win and I'll do that. And he was, he's been very successful with that as well. Well, you know, Pat first went from uh, LA to New York. I'm sure he went for a better deal in New York. And then he went from New York to Miami because of, uh, another better deal where he basically got ownership mm-hmm. <laughs> within the club. Uh, but I think every coach understands that. I think Phil often communicated that in terms of uh, no matter who you are as a coach, because you're around them so much, especially in the NBA level. Think about how many practices you have, how many games you have. Eventually, that core group that you have, if you don't come up with unique ways of, of uh, addressing them, they're going to tune you out. And PJ was very sensitized to um, the messages that he would convey in a meeting. And if you look at it, there's so many meetings that go on. A huddle is a meeting. You saw that meeting, that intense meeting in the Indiana Pacers series where he got on their asses. You can only do that so many times, right? Mm-hmm. He picked his spot to be able to do that. So you know, that, those are some of the characteristics of uh, PJ that allowed him to be um, definitely one of the greatest coaches of all time. What um – as I mentioned, you were with him in Chicago. You, you stayed in touch with him while he was in L.A., but you work with him again in New York. What was the biggest change you saw 
and how he had to deal with things from Chicago, L.A., final spot, New York. What, what was the biggest changes? Well, it was a huge. Well, I don't think there's that really much difference in terms of going coaching, uh, in terms of going from uh, Chicago to Los Angeles, uh, because he was dealing with big personalities in both venues. I think Kobe Bryant posed an extreme challenge for him because here's a guy that looked uh, as Michael. As Michael, he looked at up to Michael as a big brother, as a role model, somebody. It's game he wanted to pattern himself off of, and you know the closest thing to MJ, and he's not MJ. <laughs> Let's not get that confused. But the closest thing to MJ uh, that we've seen is Kobe, <clears throat> and Kobe very bright and precocious. But Kobe came straight into the league instead of going through the natural. Uh, evolutionary process that we normally do in America by sending kids to college and letting them evolve in an age appropriate environment. So he had to come in as a boy into a man's environment and try to make his way there. And as challenging as his coach, Michael, it was more challenging. I'm sure Phil, the coach um, Colby because of that step he missed in his life. He had to grow up, under that kind of surrounding and spotlight. So I know that was a challenge for him. Uh, you know, the book that he, uh, he actually uh, uh, wrote in his in- interim between uh, positions with, with the Lakers was kind of critical of Kobe. Um, and he had wanted to trade Kobe because he just thought Kobe could tune him out. But it was interesting when he came back to the fold, Kobe was totally willing to embrace his message. Um, and obviously Shaq and getting those parts to work together. So I think that challenge uh, was quite similar. And the reason why you had the success that Phil had defined himself as a coach by the time he got to the Lakers. And he had a certain cachet and that people are going to listen to him. But he kept perfecting with time his mode of coaching. And... Uh, and because it is so sound and it is so uh, pure and authentic, uh, players take to that. And uh, so I see that as similarity. Now, the hard part for Phil was to bring his philosophies in a managerial role where he doesn't have direct impact day to day on the players as a coach at the New York Knicks. And you know, if I look back on that, um, I would say that if Phil was able to get Steve Kerr uh, as uh, was his goal and uh, some snags developed, and by the time some snags developed uh, and him getting ownership to agree to terms that Steve wanted, the Golden State Warriors jump in and Steve being realistic and saying, oh, wow, this team is ready to ascend. And he called Phil up and Phil obviously gave his permission to pursue that because if Phil, and that's what Steve Curry said, right? He said, what would Phil Jackson do <laughs> in this position? <laughs> and what Phil Jackson would do would be the same thing that Steve Curry would do. He would go to, to that, um, to that position. But that's one thing. And then the other thing would be, uh, the Carmelo factor in terms of when we got there, Carmelo was coming off his contract and Phil and ownership decided to obviously re-sign Carmelo, gave him a non-guaranteed contract. 
And you couldn't rebuild that team the way you wanted to with Carmelo around because you had to basically try to fit pieces in to make that team successful. And really, uh, that was hard to do. And so that, that was it, it was a different dynamic, obviously, being in a general manager, um, president of the basketball operations role versus a coach. You can't really put your stamp on the team in terms of you can't put your stamp on the team in terms of the people that you bring in but in terms of the day-to-day interactions and really getting the best out of the group unless you have unless you're doing it yourself and he couldn't do that as a general manager he could do only do that really as a coach and, and you know it's interesting and, and i'm going to talk about riley again that was the one thing he was able to do uh when he got to miami is be able to find someone that obviously the players would buy into, but also some players who would be willing to buy into it, knowing they had an opportunity to win. A a very unique situation for sure, but he was able to pull it off and has remained reasonably consistent within their competition level. But it's not something everybody can make that transition from. No, no, but let's let's be fair, though. Riley goes to a situation – where he creates the culture as a coach mm-hmm. and as a general manager. But he first did it as a coach. And the people who came after him, like Coach Foe, who started out in the video room, they learned under Riley, the Riley way. He picked out a guy who he felt could carry forth his vision while he's still looking over things. That's a completely different way of uh, entering an organization as a the uh, head of it from the from the basketball side versus the coaching side. So, you know, I, I will challenge you on that distinction. What Phil was trying to do was totally different and had more constraints on it. And but Riley's initial entree into Miami was his force of leadership personality on that team. Yeah, very valid point. I, I certainly accept that. Hey, let's talk about some games here because there were some interesting games. Uh, one of the well, f- before we get into that, Michael, I, I want to. Before we get into the games, I want to just go go in this direction. I, I spent some time thinking about this, and the, the direction I want to go in is trying to put this whole series in the words and what I got out of it, what other people might have got out of it. And I just want to share from my standpoint not only the last two episodes. But all 10 episodes combined. And then we can get into details about the actual episodes 9 and 10. Because I think this sets the tone for it. Uh, and there's three things I wanted to bring up. And, and the first one is that if you remember uh, after we won the first championship in L.A., uh, Phil grabs Michael and he says, you did it the right way. And when I look at the totality of what we accomplish uh, in that decade and winning six championships from top to bottom, from the beginning to the end as an organization, we did it the right way. Uh, from Rod Thorne drafting Jordan, you know, Jordan talks about at the end, you know, I was that spark that the franchise needed in terms of how one person can really make the difference. Yes, 
he was that spark to set the franchise in the right direction. But when Jerry Ransdorf and his ownership group came in and seized control of the Bulls in 1985, they enabled that spark to become a raging inferno. And it became a first-class organization at that time. And the right way as depicted as what we did on the floor is simply playing the right way, you know. And everything that the triangle offense embodied in terms of it leading to the group being emboldened and making them always feel a part of the game. And the fact that MJ bought into this system of play, uh, which is known as a the triangle offense that came to be known, um, was a powerful testament to, again, him being coached by, because he's very coachable. Uh, in, in the early stages of his career by Dean Smith, but also finally realizing that by me giving up a little bit of myself, I'm actually not only giving more to the team, I'm going to be able to do more things and I'm going to be able to expend less energy doing them. And that really sustained his career. So that's one thing in terms of I want to get across to people. One theme is that we did it the right way. The second thing is that I, I spent time yesterday reading uh, Phil Jackson's book, 11 Rings. And I would encourage anybody who's listening to this who watched the series to go buy the book and delve deeply into it. And it will give you a more depth of understanding about you just finished witnessing over a four or five week time frame. And Phil has a chapter in there. It says, winning takes talent to repeat takes character. He got that quote from John Wooden, who's one of the greatest coaches of all time in any sport. And the foundational principles of the Chicago Bulls scouting model is that, yeah, we're always looking for talent. You can't win just with character, but you have to have talent. But character, finding character is essential. And it's something that Jerry Krause spent a lot of time doing, uh, whether it's up to interviewing someone to look at what I call their personal character, uh, how they was raised, who their background, who their influences, what are the choices and decisions they have made, how they evolved, how they learned to grow, or what I call basketball character, and how a person competes on the floor. And sometimes you have to separate personal character from basketball character in terms of decisions you make uh, in bringing guys into the fold. Uh, but our organization was built on that. You know, early in the podcast, I mentioned to uh, a little plaque that Jerry had on the wall, and it says, "You don't coach toughness; you draft it." In our case, you know, to be quite honest with you, in the '90s, and I'll get into this a little bit later if you want in our discussion. <clears throat> outside of the 1990 draft and during that time frame, we didn't really do a good job of bringing and draft picks that really contributed to us uh, once we got past 89 and 90. You got B.J. Armstrong, Scott Williams, who was a free agent. And then uh, in 1990, you obviously had Tony Kukoc, who we were able to get three years later. But you also, in the personnel side, you're bringing people in as free agents. You're bringing people in as uh, on, on trade situations. And so there are a lot of ways to build a team. And the guys we brought in in that way were really good character guys. Uh, competitive character of our teams 
easily met Wooden's definition of what I call competitive greatness. And that's hard to do. And simply being at your best when you're needed. We're always able to find a way. And when we talk about the Indiana series, you know, we'll come back to this theme of how this team found a way in a seven game series. People look at the most challenging series that the Bulls went through uh, in their in their reign. MJ's character, we look at the players as well as without reproach. He was the driver, leading by example, by sheer force of will, lifting this group higher. Pippen, what's his character like? Selflessness. He did everything on the court to make others better. Again, when we go over each game, we're going to come back to this. Rodman was our Hiyoka. That backward walking man, you know, we had talked about that earlier with times lighting the mood with his antics. But when he stepped between the line, when the game mattered, he showed up. And, and, and Rob is that kind of guy where you say, and we made that decision. We're bringing in a guy who people think has questionable personal character issues. But from the standpoint of basketball character, when he steps between those lines, he's bringing it. And, and it's good for people to understand that distinction. And when you really get to know Dennis, when you take the facade away, uh, deep down, he is a genuine, lovable, likable guy. And he brought levity to the group. And that's the beauty of the Hoyoka, you know. Harper, you know, when Phil had an opportunity to, at the end, um, they meet as a group. And they meet in a restaurant. And he asked each player to basically um, toast another player. One person picks another player. Phil was the one who toasted Harper. And, you know, when Ron came in his lead, he was a dynamic athletic guard who was thought of as a scorer. He wasn't thought of as a facilitator or a defender. But Harp changed his game. He sacrificed uh, in what he thought he was as a player for the good of the group and became – the defender and facilitator that we needed, that glue-type player. And you would have thought of Harper that when he was first coming out of Miami of Ohio to the Cleveland Cavaliers. Tony Kukoc's character, you know, inner toughness hardened by the life that he lived in Croatia, the war that was going on, um, all his basketball experiences. He was a player who could step up in big moments because he was a big-time t- talent. And one aspect that I loved and that um, – when we got to the final series and Michael had the big shot, there was still, what, five seconds on the floor, on the clock. Mm-hmm. And there, we had to defend him. He left Tony on the floor to defend. He might not have done that when Tony first came out because Tony was thought of as an empty shell by some people defensively. But the fact he made that growth over time and that Phil trusted him in the last five seconds to, to step on the floor is great. And people don't think of Luke Longley as this tough guy. And it's not outward, but when you have to man the mental in the NBA and be a productive center and go up against those big bodies, there's a certain degree of toughness you have to, to deal with just by the rigors of post play. And you know, I could go on and on. And you asked me about Phil. Phil character is that he's open, he's inclusive, he's bright tough-minded he's compassionate he's a consummate leader and always spoke about him being transform transformational and this harkens back to something that i have 
communicated to the uh, young teams that I've coached. And it goes back to uh, Michael's college coach. I, I read a long time ago, Dean Smith, the Carolina way. And Dean had a team um, philosophy that he always got across. Play hard, play smart, play together. You hear those things, what does it mean? In that book, he defines it. I'm going to read it to the group and to the people who are listening. Playing hard means to play with effort, determination, and courage. And when you look at our team, we played with effort. We weren't a one-effort team. We made multiple efforts. Scotty Pippen's game is all based on that from a defensive standpoint in terms of how he's able to challenge passing lanes, recover, um, and support everybody else. Determination, that's epitomized best by MJ. Encourage at heart is what takes you over the top. Playing smart with good execution and poise, treating each possession as if it's the only one in the game. The only way to have a smart team is to have one that is fundamentally sound. And there was no more fundamentally sound team playing the game of basketball on the offensive and defensive end than those Bulls teams. And that's one reason that we were able to win championships. And that was because of how we practice and how we started out practice. And a lot of that had to do with Tex Winter approach to the game in terms of the basic drills that he um, put in play and uh, that we executed at the beginning of practice. And then there's playing together. And, and the way Dean defines it, it means unselfishly trusting your teammates doing everything possible not to let them down. One man who fails to do his job unselfishly could undermine the efforts of four other players on the court. Our plan falls apart. We don't take care of one another. Set screen, play team defense, box out, pass to the open man. Those three things, playing hard, playing smart, playing together, that's the character of our total team. And that's what shows for over this 10-part series that uh, we just witnessed. And I'll get to one other later, but I'll let you take it in the direction you want to take it now. <laughs> well, I want to get into a couple of the games because uh, sure. when you look back at the series against the Pacers, and one of the things that really comes to mind as we look back on these games, you know, the Pacers and the teams of Bulls face, they had some really good players. And that Indiana bunch was loaded, man. I mean, they had size. They had skill. They had a lot of good things working for them. Uh, and I think when we look back, we kind of forget about the fact that the Bulls did not have walkovers in a lot of these playoff rounds. Now, maybe early no. on. But, you know, when it came to seeing who was going to be playing for, for Larry, these guys found the opposition bringing their A game virtually every night. And while there were a couple of games that were decided on just a missed shot here and there, I mean, every game was tooth and nail. And I think even Michael mentioned the fact that we knew we were going to be in a battle because every game I had a new cut or a new bump or something, uh, just realizing that this was not just a mental battle between he and Reggie Miller, but this was uh, us uh, against them. And there, there were no survivors uh, who weren't ready to really deal with uh, the situation that was at hand because this was a rough and tumble series. But with that said, Clarence, there was a lot of skill on the floor. This wasn't a goon squad that they were facing. These were guys that could actually play the game themselves. I have no doubt about that. And, and, and I've 
I, having listened back to my podcast, I think one of my uh, favorite phrases is "no doubt." Now, <laughs> when you bring up a bring up a bring up a statement, and uh, no, the Indiana team was just a fine team, fine collection. You know, Mark Jackson being a crafty point guard who would go down in the post, but you know, we negated that aspect of his game by putting Pip on. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't do that skill because. Pip's just too good a defender, so we're able to neutralize him to a degree. Reggie Miller just being a bitch off the ball to guard. Uh, you know, Harp was first challenged with uh, for guarding Reggie, but while a lot of people don't probably remember that after the first two games, Harp got hurt. So, you know, we had to change up a little bit in, in reference to that. And then uh, the big center they had, Schmitz, was a really good, effective post player. Um, you had Chris Mullen on that team, but he wasn't as effective. He was a little bit older at that time. He wasn't as effective that series. Jalen Rose coming off the bench for him, who was chopping at the bit about trying to get more time. Uh, you got the Davis brothers who brought a physical toughness to the team. Yeah, they they were definitely uh, worthy opponents who pushed us to the max. And uh, that's what you want. You know, I, I talked earlier in, in one of our podcasts about uh, the Latin term competere, which means to strive together. And you know, by you having that type of team to go against at that level, it brings the best out in you. And you guys are striving to, you know, be the best that you can be. And you know, that final game, I actually went back and watched the seventh game from start to finish. And it's so much that you forget Obviously, just this whole process of doing this with you, not only watching the series, but getting prepared to put my thoughts in this form has caused me to delve deeply and do a lot of research and just bring back a lot of memories. And there were things about that seventh game I thought I knew, but I really didn't know until I went back and watched it from point A to point Z. And just watching the highlights, as depicted in the, uh, the documentary, it gives you a flavor, but it doesn't give you the, the total flavor of watching the game. And after watching that seventh game, Michael, there's only one word to describe it, grit. And we won that game because we are grittier than the Pacers. Uh, Zach Lowe, who people might know, uh, printed this comment by um, Mark Jackson, we had the confidence their run was over. We had answers to every question. Really? <laughs> we got answers to every question? How? To me, this type of hubris is what gets you in trouble. And then I put this comment in response to this. No rebounds, no rings. We, you know, when, when Phil leads the group in terms of give the, the group message, um, and the, finally going out to the, the locker room after the seventh game, he says two things, rebound and defense. We out-rebounded Indiana Pacers by 16 rebounds. 22 of those were offensive rebounds. It was an ugly game in a lot of respects, but a beautiful game when you really understand competition. We shot 38% from the field, Michael. Indiana shot 48%, but we had 20 more shots. We shot 58% from the free throw line. Indiana shot 
62%. These are professional teams where you, if it's a regular season game without this type of tension and energy being expended, you expect them to shoot 80%. Uh, and those statistics kind of define the essence and, and heart of this game and how we're able to persevere and find a way to get it done. And, and no rest for the weary after that. You know, one of the things about the playoffs at that time, you know, it, it was you were playing virtually every other night. And for a lot of teams, and Grant, the travel wasn't that difficult going from Chicago to Indianapolis. But still in all, it, it was really a grind. What did you see in players at that point just to see how they had been worn down and had to still find another gear in order to be ready for the next game and hopefully the next series? Well, you know, the NBA got smart. Um, they, they, they used to be, when they first started, when we first started our run, used to have back-to-back games. Like mm-hmm. you might have a Saturday-Sunday game, which is criminal when you're trying to get the best out of performance. But back then in that day, you had to um, satisfy TV, and the NBA was still growing as a sport. Uh, now they space the games out pretty well so guys can get rest. And, uh, uh, for example, in the third and fourth game in Indiana, they were booking games where we had just one day rest in between. Matter of fact, uh, you know, the only thing that good that came out of that, that weekend for me, cause we lost both of those games is that I got to fulfill one of my bucket lists. Guess what that bucket list was, Michael? I'm scared to ask, but I know I need to. It, Indianapolis, the Indy 500. Oh, that's right. It was that weekend. That's right. I went to the Indy 500 for the first time, called up my man Joe Neal, said, Joe, give me some tickets. This is something I've always wanted to do. Um, But that's just a side thing. I I had to get that in. But these guys live for this moment. So, you know, it's a no excuse mentality. Uh, It's wear and tear on the body. But during the season, Phil does a good job of managing uh, minutes. Like, uh, what's the big term that people come out with now? Load management. You know, people don't think of MJ being someone who was load managed, but in fact, he was not so much uh, missing a game like they do now. But if we're blowing someone out, MJ's not playing in the fourth quarter, so you you get him minutes there. Uh, during the season, as you know, the NBA season, once the NBA season starts, you really don't practice a lot. Uh, so MJ would sit out at practices. Uh, you know, as he aged, Phil was very sensitized to that. Get him prepared for that. So I don't really look at that as a, a huge issue. Matter of fact, the, the old timers would laugh because, you know, they used to have to get on the commercial planes and <laughs> deal First with that. First flight out the now next day. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, now we have charter jets, leave whatever we want, luxury hotels, everything. So, you know, suck it up, baby. It's a great life. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to the game that obviously garnered a lot of attention. Um, a lot of people thought it was the flu. I think even you and I talked about the fact that it was more food poisoning uh, in Utah. And, and I know some people, I was talking to someone recently about the fact that how can you be in a hotel and you don't have this and the room service? Well, you got to go back in the time. First of all, Salt Lake City. Secondly, we weren't in, we weren't in, we weren't in Salt Lake City. That's that's the thing. Uh, 
We were in, what's the, the mountain resort? Park City? Park City, Utah. You're right. You're right. Yeah. But my point we're, being... We're in Park but my point being, being in a place like that where it wasn't the hustle and bustle and you don't have that many hotels at that time they were doing the 24-hour room service, um, it, it didn't really surprise me that you had to really uh, really search for food. But when did you get wind that something had gone awry and it was more than just a flu? I didn't know uh, until after the game because I didn't go to shoot around that morning. I stayed at my Park City venue. I think my dad was with me, so I kind of hung out with him. And, uh, and then we went to the game. And you could see that something was wrong with Michael. And you know, I didn't have any earphones on, but you saw him just persevering. And after the fact is when I actually uh, found out. What went through your mind to see what he went through after learning that he was dealing with a case of food poisoning? Not surprised because Michael had the ability just to channel his mind to focus on getting the job done. And um, the fact that uh, he scored 38 points (laughs) and under, under those conditions just tells you that he's able, you know, there's a term that, I remember in sports when I was coming up that you got to go to the well and, uh, and that means to dig deep inside you. And, you know, Pip said something to the effect that when in talking about MJ, that sometimes you are going to a place that you didn't know you could go to. And I think he specifically said he finds something deep down inside you didn't know was there. In Michael's case, I don't think that's true because Michael knows that there's something deep down. Other people might feel that way, and maybe I'm giving Michael too much credit, but he's been in these situations too much, and he trusts himself so much that he knows he can go to that place. And he's willing to explore a side of his psyche because thinking about failure is not a option for him uh, and you know Mark Vansel who wrote the book Rare Air uh, made some to me some of the best comments throughout the documentary on, on Michael's psyche and, uh, and and this concept that I'm, I'm getting trying to get across right now uh, along with his ability just to be present and, and to focus um, but one thing about that game and this is I want to share with the the listeners uh, from my research was that Till Jackson talked about Michael. Now is a remarkable feat, but he also wanted to mention what Scotty did that game. And this kind of goes back to me, my opening comments about the character team. I'm just going to read you what uh, I, I wrote here. Uh, MJ's 38 points is a remarkable feat but it was also a remarkable team effort, which kind of gets overshadowed. Scotty massively orchestrated the coverage to make sure MJ didn't have to worry about defense. He could focus whatever energy he could muster on creating shots. But Scotty didn't even mention that after the game. All he talked about was MJ. The effort that he came out and gave was just incredible. These are Scotty's words, the leadership. He just kept everybody patient and made big shot after big shot. He's the MVP in my eyes. And the contribution of others tends to get overshadowed 
because of MJ's greatness. But we all know you can't win a championship at this level without people contributing to the group. And I just thought that was an incredible uh, example of Scotty's character that I just wanted to share with the people that are listening. Well, you know, I, I was going to go to that when we get to Utah again because of his courageous performance in that final game. But I, I'm going to come back to that. But um, in, in wrapping up the Utah series, the, the flu game, um, did that give, in your opinion, Michael even greater status? Although he had guys that pulled with him, and we just talked about one in Scotty. Did that take him to another level that you didn't even think you could see in a person? I will say no, Michael. This guy is incredible. He's just <laughs> a, a different beast, man. You, you see so many things from him uh, of this ilk. Uh, his ability to recover from what would, uh, like like an ankle sprain, for example, and being able to play through that. Uh, his durability is, is unmatched, and it's because of his his mental toughness. And his ability to want to be there not only for his team, but, and this sounds corny, and, and it kind of ties in with what Phil said, and that, Michael, you got this gift. And, and, and Phil said this when Michael was re- retiring the first time, trying to get him to really think about it. And you owe it because of this gift that God gives you to share it with the rest of the world. Well, he didn't owe it at that time because you, he didn't feel like it. You know, you got to really feel that. But the reality is that Michael knew he had a gift. He treasured that gift and simply wanted to give people their money's worth when he stepped on that floor. So no, nothing surprised me. But to answer your question, we're talking about it 20 something years later. Yeah. It added to his lore and you know, it's one of the huge things that people remember from that series and from that time that you just can't ever forget for his ability to persevere and get through that. Clarence Gaines is our guest. We're talking about the last dance here on ClavesOnline.com. Uh, let's move on to one of the characters or one of the people who were who was in this documentary that really, when you think about him and where he started and where he's at today, I, I thought was one of the more fascinating contributors to this, and that's Steve Kerr. Um, and they really got into his family situation and really talked a lot about him and, and what he went through as a youngster losing his dad. And he and Michael had that in common. And ironically, they never talked about it. What do you remember and what do you know about Steve Kerr? Because uh, I, I know him just a little bit, not obviously as well as you do. Always found him to be a, a very interesting person that had the ability to get along with just about anybody. Uh, Steve is uh, an incredible person, and it, it goes back to his experiences as a youth. This is why you have to understand what I call the sociological side of a human being, how society has shaped and impacted him. And, and Steve is uh, a citizen of the world. You know, his dad was a, uh, a foreign uh, ambassador. He also worked at UCLA, so he had a tremendous amount of experiences worldwide. I know he lived in Lebanon. I think he lived in Paris. There are other places that he lived. So he's picking up a lot of the culture. And I think you see that today manifest itself into uh, the views that he expresses and what he stands for when we look at the political climate 
that's happening in our country right now, uh, and that you got to trace it back to that. Uh, but I know a lot about Steve because obviously I, w- I was around the NBA at that time, and I mean, I'm going to share a, a, a lot of, a lot about him. I shared a little bit because there's a great article people want to read it that John Feinstein wrote when Steve was uh, at the University of Arizona that really dovetails and details uh, his life. I think it does an, an extremely good job of doing it at that time. So it goes back to 1988. Um, but Steve mentions what? He was drafted by Phoenix, uh, only stuck around for a year there, but he made his bones and his chops in, in, in Cleveland. And Steve, in the documentary, says he's looking at the Bulls team, and he's seeing how John Paxson plays with Michael Jordan, how effective he is in the role that he's playing. He said, that's who I am, and that's where I need to be. And the fact that he got there is a testament to him understanding himself. So many players don't understand who they are, not only as people, but as basketball players. He understands his strengths. He understood his limitations. He understood the system that he would thrive in. And he took the risk. And I mentioned this last episode. He's one of four players that did this that were key in our uh, evolution after Michael. To come in on a $150,000 non-guaranteed contract to prove himself which worked out for him in the long haul to be the best decision that he ever made. They mentioned his dad, Malcolm Kurt, and they really don't, they talk about the role that he played in his life. And obviously he had a great influence, but one little tidbit they left out and I'm going to bring it up. They brought up the fact that Steve Kerr wasn't recruited by anybody during his high school years. That's true to a point after the high school season was over, and when he got into the summer months, he was offered a, a scholarship to Cal State Fullerton, which he accepted. But here's how events transpired to change your life. Lute Olson was at University of Iowa, but they were looking for a coach. He takes the job at the University of Arizona and has to find some players. He probably takes that job in the spring. But they see Steve playing in the summer. And they offer Steve a scholarship at the University of Arizona after he commits the Cal State Fulton. And this is where his dad intervenes and says, Steve, where do you really want to go? Because Steve had given his word, and his word is his bond. But he hadn't yet signed the papers. He says, I really want to go to Arizona. He said, well, then that's where you're going. So be a man, talk to people at Cal State Fulton, and let them know that's where you're going. And that's how he actually got to Arizona. And that, that wasn't communicated in the uh, story. But um, Steve was integral to our success um, and still a role just like John Paxson in bringing that steely toughness uh, that was really epitomized in the Utah series when he closed it out in, in 1997 um, by saying, Michael, I'm ready. And let's talk a little bit about the evolution of, of MJ as a leader. When we go back to uh, the first series that we won uh, against the Lakers, Phil Jackson was saying, Michael, who's open? 
and 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 Phil had laid that pipe. <laughs> not just that moment. He's encouraged Michael based on the the rhythm and the flow of the series that you know they were marshaling all the energies to you and against you. And Pax was open, but at that key critical moment, Michael, who's open? But let's go to the fifth series. It's not Phil initiating that. It's Michael's telling Steve, you're going to be open, be ready. And what does Steve say? I'm, I'm ready. ready. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. You know, and he was ready. And it takes a certain level of toughness and confidence in yourself to be able to execute at that moment. And obviously Steve had that, that steely toughness to be able to do that. And, you know, Steve said this one thing, um, that the lesson that he learned from MJ is that the thing I learned from MJ is that you got to go for it every time, every play. You never, ever worry about failure. And you've been around a lot of athletes. Uh, some athletes have what I call a optimistic mindset and other ones have a negative mindset. Uh, and both Steve, Michael, had that optimistic mindset that things are going to uh, to go their way. Matter of fact, uh, w- one of my responsibilities was that I interface and interacted with our team psychologist, a guy named Steve Julius, when I was with the Chicago Bulls. And we used to give multiple tests for our prospective draft picks. But one thing I have always taken out from this test was that uh, Julius recommended a book I read called Learned Optimism. And uh, basically, we were looking for qualities of people who were have an optimistic mindset. And I encourage the readers to to go look that book up. But Michael epitomizes that. He didn't have to, and, that, and that's what's important about the book, is that some people naturally have that through their life experiences, but other people can learn to be optimistic by training their mind in that way. And uh, yeah, just as we look for people who are uh, already have those built-in qualities, you don't want to train that on a professional level. But it's good for people to know that they can go from being a pessimist to an optimist, and that it can have a a, a big impact on their life and how they approach uh, challenging situations and things. You know, when you, when you look at Kerr and, and you follow his career, and, and you know he had a good career after he left Chicago. Uh, but, <laughs> he had a good career. Yeah, he did. He won championships. Exactly. But, but you know, <laughs> when you if you're coaching, if you're Steve Kerr, the coach now, for a player who just had heard about Steve Kerr, uh, didn't really know a lot about him, they heard he won right. a little bit. What do you think that next practice is going to be like when they have one for some of those younger players and maybe even the veterans who really didn't understand the fabric of what Steve Kerr was all about? And do you think they'll appreciate him even more for who he is? You know, just like Phil, obviously, that's a tough question, Michael, because I think they already appreciate him for who he is. And this just gives them a depth of understanding of where that him came from, you know, his, his I, I really loved him talking to um, his mom because his mom talked about the father and what he was trying to um, do as a president of Beirut University. 
And, and, and the three things that she mentions that my husband wanted to develop tolerant, humanitarian, and global minded citizens as leaders. So what did he develop in his own kids? A tolerant, humanitarian, global minded citizen. What he wanted to do as a president, he did as a father. And not every father can say that. So when you look at um, the guys that Steve coaches, the guys that Phil coaches, the level of authenticity that they possess and the love and compassion, I only use that word compassion, the compassion they're able to show and that philosophical approach to life, it's something that just engenders them or connects them to their team. Um, I think Steve said this once, and he said, coaching is not controlling, it's guiding. And look at all the coaches he had. Lute Olson, great coach at University of Arizona. Matter of fact, on our fifth championship in 1997, we had three Lute Olson players. You know it was Judd Bouchler. You know Steve Kerr. But a lot of people forget, and I want to bring his name up, is Brian Williams. Brian Williams, Bison Daly. Bison Daly. Yeah, they they and never found him. They never found him. But luckily we found him for that stretch run when we got him on the team in March. And that was about the only time that we were able to get a player that late in the season who effectively contributed to our team. But all three of those players were coached by an incredible coach who grounded his players in the fundamentals of the game. When you talk about Steve, when you talk about Judd, when you talk about Brian, uh, matter of fact, we briefly talked about the Indiana series, but what we really didn't talk about, uh, and I'm going to go to it because we're talking about these players right now, Steve Kerr was averaging three points a game in that series. But in the seventh game, he made a huge contribution and stepped up uh, with his three-point shots. I think he went three of five from the three-point line, had 11 points that game, had a really big stretch in the second quarter. Judge can't comes off the bench and zero points, but he had five rebounds. And what was great about Judd because of the size that Indiana has is that he can guard two to four. So in terms of switches, you know, people talk about the modern NBA. Well, our team was a modern NBA team, you know, with Pip, Harp, and um, MJ. You had your six, seven, six, seven, six, 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 seven guards and forwards who could switch on anybody. Then you bring a Judd Boucher off the bench, you could do the same thing. Uh, so, so from 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 that standpoint. Steve had that. Then he was coached by Lenny Wilkins. He was coached by Phil Jackson. He was he was coached by Greg Popovich. <laughs> you know, and, and at the pro ranks, Cotton Fitzsimmons was another one of his coaches. So he had a broad perspective of coaches to draw from to become the coach that he turned out to be. Hey, Mike Claiborne here, and by the way, thanks for listening to ClaibsOnline.com. Before we go any further, coming up next, I want to introduce you to one of my friends from Ameren, Illinois. He's the vice president of gas operations. He is Eric Kozak. 
That's right. They're not just an electric company. They're also a gas delivery provider. Now, when you talk about smelling and locating gas and the potential for you to have a problem, what are some of the problems and some of the issues a customer could have aside from as the eventual, perhaps an explosion of some sort? So what are some of the other concerns you try and maintain? Yeah, so our number one concern is uh, calling 811 before you dig. 811 is a national number. People will come out and they will mark the lines for you and let you know where your gas service is. So if you're putting in a basketball hoop or you're putting in a bush, call 811. Because if you don't call 811, you might have to call 911. <laughs> and we want to prevent that call. So that's the main issue is people calling 811 before you dig so you know where the pipelines are in the ground. Is there a charge for that? There's no charge for 811. <laughs> in a situation where you're going to do some work, as you mentioned, how deep do you have to go before you would hit on a gas line? You know, I if you're sticking in a shovel in the ground, you should call 811. You know, we don't, uh, you know, we put our uh, pipes in, you know, 24 inches for service and 30 inches, but landscape change over time. You know, different things happen. You don't know what the previous homeowner did. He might have took a bunch of dirt off. So if you're going to stick a shovel in the ground, you need to call 811 before you dig. And I just want people to know that, you know, natural gas is a clean, reliable, safe fuel. But like any source of energy, it can be dangerous. So if you do smell gas, you know, pick up the phone and call us. We respond 24-7, seven days a week, no charge, ever. And we respond on average within 22 minutes. Over 33,000 calls a year we get, and our average response time is around 22 minutes. And I think that's pretty good. I think it's impressive. So that's that's the main thing is. And have your equipment checked out, and it's a wonderful product you can use for many, many years worry-free. Are you in the market to purchase a new or used vehicle? Munganass St. Louis Acura is here to help. Check out all of their inventory at stlouisacura.com. They'll bring the car to you, and they can also complete the entire process without you having to leave your home. Contact them today at stlouisacura.com. Let's move on uh, from Steve Kerr to... That great series, the final series of The Last Dance uh, in Utah. Uh, Utah was ready. The, another team, Clarence, I'll go back to, and I compared uh, Indiana as being a game and, and competitive team. This Utah bunch were no slouches. They came out of a really tough Western conference, and they were ready for Chicago, and they they gave Chicago everything they wanted and then some. For two years, they gave us everything we wanted and, and then some. You know, when you talk about Utah, you think about Stockton and Malone. And you couldn't find two tougher individuals to go against. Um, and and then they personified their coach and Jerry Sloan, you know, who was on the great Bulls teams uh, when I was coming up. He and Bobby Weiss. He and and Bobby Weiss and then Norm Van Leer. You talk about a – Yes. That was a rough crowd. Rough crowd. Junkyard dog team. Never won championships, but were consistent winners in the NBA. 50-win teams. And basically, you know, they set the foundation in in terms of – people were appreciating professional basketball in the Chicago market before obviously uh, MJ comes in and just takes it to another level that the Chicago franchise is still benefiting from today. Uh, but they gave us everything uh, they could um, during that series. 
let's see what we go out to Utah and they they're resting on a seven day. We've been through this tough seven game series, uh, but we're still able to get a split out of it. And then we come back to uh, Chicago and then we have the 53 point blowout or <laughs> an aberration. And, you know, early before we got on the, uh, the podcast, you had mentioned this, a series that ESPN is doing detail with uh, Phil and uh, Dennis Rodman, Steve Curry, you said Mark Jackson. Well, I talked actually, I, I traded messages with Phil in reference to the detail and shared what I had put together. You know, I, I took a four minute segment that they had on the detail on, on uh, social media and YouTube and put up 30 different concepts in bas- basketball terms uh, from that. And, but Phil, came back and he says, yeah, you know, that was the 53-point game <laughs> they wanted me to do from an offensive standpoint. That's what they sent me. <laughs> and he says what they should have done, instead of asking me to do it from an offensive standpoint, was to do it from a defensive standpoint. To do in detail what we did to kick that team's ass by 53 points. And, you know, to do that at that stage, at that level, uh, was obviously something that you don't expect. But here's the beauty of the NBA game. You flush it, and you're on to the next game. And what's the next game? Between practices, that's our guy Dennis Rockman being in the Yoka. <laughs> Going off to do his little wrestling in Detroit. When did you get and wind of that? When did you get wind of what was going on there? I don't even remember that, Michael, but I'm sure the, the, the TV brought, brings up the memories and then I said, okay, now, now I do remember it. <laughs> but that's something that had gone out my mind. And when you look at it, you say, wow. But uh, I, w- I was on a podcast, uh, not a podcast, with a Zoom call last night with uh, Cliff, Les- Cliff Levingston, Dennis Hobson, Brad Sellers, and Jim Clemens. And that came up. And... Uh, I said he probably got fined, and, and Cliff News Leverton said, "Yeah, he he got fined. I remember twenty five thousand dollars, but he made two hundred fifty thousand dollars to do it. So <laughs> that's a pretty good payoff right there." Hey, you know what? I want to I, I want to ask you this though, because one of the things, and we were having this discussion the other day uh, about mm-hmm. how Phil handled that, because it wasn't like he had a lot of options. What do you do? Do you run him after a game? Make him do the stairs? Do you bench him? I mean, we're in the finals here, man. Everything is on the line. So he was the right coach not to magnify it even more. Was he the right guy once again for a situation that some coaches may have cost themselves everything just to prove a point? Exactly, because he's a Hayoka. You know, when you look at what he had to do, you kind of laugh at it. And people understand Dennis, and they know he's going to be there. And Dennis put pressure on himself. Dennis, actually, if you look at the statistics, if you go back, he really wasn't having a great series against uh, the Utah Jazz. I think he only averaged six rebounds uh, or something like that. But he put the focus on him, himself, by going and doing that. So all the media is saying, what are you going to do now? It kind of harkens back to when MJ goes off to uh, Atlantic City during the New York series and Mm -hmm. people start blasting him. And what does Michael do? He comes out fierce. What did Dennis do that game? Dennis had the best rebounding game of the series. He had 14 rebounds in that game and made clutch 
free throws down the stretch. Who did you never expect Dennis Rodman to make clutch free throws down the stretch? But he hit two critical free throws. Actually, went six of eight uh, for the game. So you're right, Phil. You got your man. You took that upon you to go down there. We know who you are as a personality. I already talked about the character of our team separating what personal character for basketball character. Bring them back in the group, get between the lines, and worry about the precious present, and get your job done. And let's go on. You know that's the difference between uh, a, a coach who probably is insecure and has to always uh, um, put their stamp on the team versus someone who recognizes the individual differences in individuals and and accounts for that. And and you know see. In, in terms of Dennis, when we first brought him into the organization, Phil talked to the group about Dennis' ways and how we have to be a little more tolerant of this guy. And because of what he's able to produce and because of the type of team we had and the maturity level of the team, we were able to do that. So, yeah. Let me ask you, you know, obviously this is Michael's team. It's always been Michael's team. But how how much was this a team where they policed themselves, where uh, it, it didn't always have to be Michael to be able to step up and get in the guy's face to say, hey, look, this is how we do it, or for a new guy who comes on board uh, who's not sure what the commitment has to be. Who were some of the other players on, on those teams that took it upon themselves to make sure there was law and order within a dressing room of, of 15? Well, the, the strongest leader uh, in my tenure with the Bulls uh, from the players' perspective was uh, Bill Cartwright. And it's been pretty well documented what Bill did in terms of leadership. Uh, and first of all, taking Michael's shit and not ever backing down and standing up to him. Um, they talk about in the 11 Rings book, of, you know, when Michael really said, okay, this is a guy I really can't mess with, even though I'm going to talk this and that. I really can't mess with this guy. And it was a one-on-one drill. And what really Bill was really good at doing was, you know, people remember his battles with uh, Patrick Ewing and the fact that one of the reasons we were successful against the New York Knicks is that we never had to double Patrick. And Bill could play him straight up, man on man. And, you know, you don't compromise your defense and you make it harder for everybody else. Uh, well, he he and Michael got into a one-on-one drill, you know, in the post. And Michael goes up, Bill's able to slide his feet, get his big body down, and forcefully bring Michael down, and he catches him. And that kind of toughness, yet compassion, that showing that little one sequence where, you know, Michael said, "Real, this is really a guy I can't mess with." And, and everybody knows what Bill did, you know, when Scotty had the infamous game where he didn't. Um, uh, go back on the floor in an earlier series that we talked about with the New York Knicks and Tony Hicks, the bucket, Pete Myers, those a great pass, but the players settled that themselves in the locker room. And so that would be one. And then you've got, uh, Scotty Pippen who led in a different way than, um, MJ in, in terms of Scotty was more of a nurturing type of guy. And, uh, that leadership style was a nice contrast and, and balance to Michael's forceful uh, leadership uh, style. And 
you know, so the, those would be, you know, and, and then John Paxson, and just by the way he carries himself, uh, had a presence. Um, because you know you got people who lead certain groups <laughs> of people, might not necessarily the whole team that hang out together, um, <clears throat> but the leadership from within came obviously from Michael, and you know Scotty was right behind him, and obviously Cartwright in the first series. That's why they were the co-captains. It was MJ and uh, Bill as the co-captains. I'm going to come back to Michael's leadership in just a bit, but let's talk about that final game. Um, Scotty gets started. His back goes out on him. And to see him go on and off the floor, and you touched on something earlier about the other game where Michael had the uh, the food poisoning. Scotty didn't make a lot of baskets, but the fact that he was a viable decoy, but the ones that he did make, Clarence, especially in a game of that magnitude, you, you can't overlook that because I'm not sure, and you know that team better than me, was there another guy that could step up and, and be confident in making a shot, let alone taking one when the game was on the line like it was against uh, Utah? Sure. Tony Kukoc. <laughs> Tony Kukoc, big game performer. You saw that in the – Indiana Pacers mm-hmm. Game Seven series. You know, we didn't spend time on TK. A lot of people don't really remember that in that Indiana series in 1998, Dennis Rodman came off the bench. Tony was starting in certain matchups in certain situations. You know, he's an ideal stretch four now in today's game, but he was doing a stretch four thing back then, and. You know, Indiana gets out in that first game and that seventh game early, and they take the big lead. Uh, they basically take them to the Davis boys, and they go at TK. And uh, Phil didn't give up on him. He made him persevere through that, and then made the substitution for, for Dennis. But in the second half, starts him again, and he hits big three after big three after big three. And the same with Utah Jazz. You go back in game five, Tony Kukoc is hitting big shots. So Tony was definitely able to step up. Uh, Then you also have the factor of Steve Kerr, which comes into play in game six. Um, And it comes into play like this. But let's go back to Scotty before I go to Steve and and the final play. And then you can, we can, you know, deal with this series a little bit more too, if you want. Um, But, you're right. Scotty trying to get that back right, being decoy for the most part. But where did Scotty score from? He utilized his thighs and length in the post to get a few buckets and, and to contribute and keep the defense honest from that standpoint. But how does Steve Kerr play into this in that last sequence? Go back to the previous year when. Steve Kerr is the shot to clinch the series. How did that come about? Because John, Pat, not John Paxson, but uh, Stockton cheated on Kerr. Try to double down on Michael. Double. Yeah. You're right. So we come to, and this is where institutional learning comes in, or what, you, what happens happened in the past, you remember, right? So... MJ steals the ball, which is a brilliant play. That just shows you, you, you got to pick your spots when they count the most. And MJ knows what play they're running. 
So he studied this game. He studied the team. He's always mentally into the game. He kind of hides out, doesn't clear as his man is going the opposite way uh, to the weak side. And as soon as Carl gets that ball, he's on him and steals it right away without him knowing. Then the brilliance of Phil and that what he always tried to teach this team and it comes through is that you own yourself this game. You know, that's why we go through the practices and we have the triangle offense is to get the game to be more player centric than coach centric. He doesn't call a timeout. So the other team can set up some defense. He he obviously trusts Michael to uh, initiate the offense and do what's necessary. People spread out. But because of what Steve Kerr did the previous year in the series, we know that Stockton's not going to cheat off of Kerr. And then everybody knows what happened after that. <laughs> the so-called push, there's a little bit of a push there. But Michael got this kid off balance, uh, rises up, and confidently knocks down a game winner to finish at that point in a grand style what people thought was going to be the end of his career, which didn't turn out to be his career. What went through what a your, moment. What, what, what a went moment. Th- what went through your mind at that at that moment in the game? I mean, because you, you're sitting on the edge of your seat. I mean, there's nothing you can do physically. I mean, you you're a fan like everybody else at that point. But what, correct. What what went through your mind when when you saw it in his hands and you'd seen this enough in your lifetime? But this is the one that really counts. Uh, Michael is a great pitcher that people have shown with. All the and you've probably seen it, Utah fans in the background as Michael rises for the shot, and it's it's a tremendous picture to look at. Matter of fact, Jay Adande put it on his uh, Twitter feed, and so I could look at this picture a thousand times and get different things out of it. <clears throat> but and one frame of this picture is this little boy. Let's say he's about eight nine years old and he's holding up his hand both of them with a six on it before it goes in (laughs) and you talking about confidence (laughs) it kind of reminds me of when bj armstrong in the corner the great play in phoenix where everybody touches the ball Harris grant's driving Ball gets thrown to Paxson. Ball leaves the hand, and BJ falls flat out on the floor, celebrating because he knows Pax is going to drill that sucker. And that's how I felt because the circumstances of events, the life, the luck, the Times where he's done this in the past, come up crunch, you just have that confidence that the game's going to work in your favor. And uh, I know Phil talks about you know, the law of cause and effect. And, and the law of cause and effect is simply, it's not so much luck, 
it, it's the tenets that you live by uh, are how you approach the game and how that it's able to transpire at moments in the game that work out in your favor. And everything about Michael Jordan leads to that moment. He's detailed. He's precise. He's an incredible hard worker. He perfected his craft. He has all the attributes that you look for in an athlete plus more, you know, you know, the black athlete, when we were coming up, you know, has always been uh, celebrated for their athletic gifts, but not always been acknowledgement for their mental acumen and brilliance. And during Michael's time, and even before that, that, that type of mindset started to change and, and, and people appreciating the cerebral approach to the game that a, a Magic Johnson or a Michael Jordan was able to bring forth. Even, a, you know, not even, but so many players, Isaiah Thomas, who's a brilliant floor leader and, and tactician. Uh, and you see that all come, come to bear here. Uh, and you know, people talk about, you know, they're uh, at the end, um, Barack Obama talks about the cultural impact that Michael had on our country. And I thought his comments were profound because Michael and his sphere of influence changed the culture in a tremendously positive way. You know, he, he gets critiqued for not taking a political stance, but he impacted more people and in, in opening their minds uh, about black people in a way that a lot of people I'm not going to say never seen before because Jackie Robinson's impact was, was to a degree, but he just added to that. You know, we, we, the people that come before us, we took, you know, Kareem came with this book on the show with the sort of giant and each level raises us as a group, as a, in terms of a group of people in society. And, and Michael was that next level, uh, in terms of the, um, the Jackie Robinsons, the Muhammad Ali's, in, in, in terms of changing perception and, and changing mindset. Clarence Gaines is our guest. Uh, let's let's talk about something, and we've talked about it a little bit during the course of this time. Uh, Michael's leadership ability, and and you've seen Michael in a couple of different lights uh, throughout his career, even going back to his days in North Carolina. So for you, what have you noticed about his leadership change from the first repeat to where he ended his career in Chicago? You know, I did a little homework on this. Uh, and when I mean homework, obviously, um, I, I thought long and hard about how we're going to end this podcast series. So I, I told you, and I think I've communicated to the listener that I, I ended up reading 11 Rings for the most part, not all of it, but key parts of it. And I'm going to share what what Phil had to say in terms of talking about who MJ was as a leader in the first three-peat versus who he was as a leader in the second uh, second three-peat. And he talked about 
Michael not being a natural leader, but he was a natural doer, and he drove the team with his uh, sheer force of will. And that's who he was in that first three-peat. Um, you know, Phil gets into a concept in in terms of, and it's very important to him in, in terms of uh, tribal leadership. He, he quotes this uh, this book on tribal leadership, and it's five stages to the book. And when he first took over the uh, the team, they were in the what he called the, the third stage uh, of, of tribal leadership, which simply was, um, I'm great and you're not, which is more of a selfish thing. You know, the, the individual focus and not necessarily always team focus. And his challenge was to move that to stage four, which was we're great and they're not in terms of the team. And he felt that, in the first group, in terms of that first three-peat, that he's able to move move the team to stage four. But in the second series of three-peats, that they're able to get to stage five, which very few teams are able to get to. You know, you know a bell curve. And at the end of the bell curve, which is only about 2% of, of the people can be at that top elite echelon. And, you know, we're lucky if of championship teams, if we ever see 2% of the championship teams get to this point, I'm going to read what he had to say this. He said, the team adopted a broader life is great point of view by midseason. It came clear to me that it wasn't competition per se that was driving the team. It was simply the joy of the game itself. The dance was ours, and the only team that could compete against us was ourselves. And one concept when I, I said I'm going to come back to and I'm going I'm to get to Michael's leadership, but when I first started out this podcast, uh, you know, I talked about two aspects. And the third aspect I wanted to bring up was joy. And that the joy that manifested in this second three-peach, which you really saw specifically uh, in that first year. You know, at any multiple championship becomes somewhat of a grind because it's hard to repeat. You, know, you can win the first time with talent, but as John Wooden said, to repeat and to be champions over time, you have to have character. And in MJ's case, not, I mean, I'm going back to the joy concept. This team played with a certain joy that first year. It was 72 and 10. And not only from the joy that you saw manifest itself in the style of basketball, but the joy they brought to the citizens of Chicago, to Michael Jordan fans, to Chicago Bulls fans around the world was unmatched. And, and Jerry Reinsdorf in his closing comments um, reflects on that in terms of thing that's probably made him happiest. When he looked out, of the sea of people in Grant Park and saw all those smiling faces and know what this team meant to the city of Chicago and how it really impacted them in a way that took their mind off of the day-to-day um, responsibilities of life. To bring that kind of joy to people is amazing. But back to MJ and his leadership style and 
there was a guy on the uh, who became a part of the Bulls that Phil brought in, who was at one time when he was going to college at the University of Massachusetts, was um, Dr. J's roommate. His name was George Mumford, and uh, George deals in mindfulness. As a matter of fact, he has a book that I currently have my son reading called The Mindful Athlete uh, that uh, I would encourage people who are listening to this who uh, have kids that are involved in sports or if coaches are listening um, to this and they can introduce this book to their team, uh, pick it up. But when Michael came back from baseball, Phil said he's a little bit mellower. And if you think about what he went through through that baseball experience, it, it changed him in certain ways. Uh, first of all, you are affiliated with the St. Louis Cardinals, and you know the, the pace of baseball is different than the pace of basketball, not only on the field or on the court, but in the, in the clubhouse. You're, it's a longer game. Uh, it has more lulls in it. So you have to communicate and get to know your teammates and are able to do it on a different level. Michael's able to hang out in that environment and probably be somebody he hadn't been in a long while. So he brought that back to the Chicago Bulls, that experience. And George said this to MJ, and this is a quote from Phil, though at times he could be, no, it's not what I want to go to it. I'll hit to that later. He said it was, George said this to, to uh, PJ about um, Michael. It's difficult from MJ to develop close relationships with his teammates because he was a prisoner in his own room. And you, and you saw that early in the series. And they, they talked, uh, Tim Hallam, uh, who was in the PR, talked eloquently about what it's like to be Michael for or Jay. And Michael, even though I, I appreciate and love the guys who he brought along with him and he needed them that kind of distanced him somewhat from the, his teammates because they would always be hanging out together. So he couldn't connect with that. And Phil said to Michael, you got to shift your perspective of leadership. It's all about being present and taking responsibility for how you relate to yourself and others. That means being willing to adjust so you can meet people where they are. Because Michael wasn't the type of person who would meet a person where they are. You'd have to meet him. And instead of expecting him to be somewhere else and getting angry and trying um, to be with them in, in that place, you need to try to meet them where they are and lead them where you want to go. And so George had been working with the Bulls team in his absence, in MJ's absence. And he got him to change his perspective uh, in terms of dealing with, along with Phil, in terms of dealing with and, and impacting uh, the players on, on that team. We continue our visit with Clarence Gaines Jr., former assistant general manager for the Chicago Bulls during their heyday. You knew a year out that this was going to be it. Uh, so as a season... Well, well pro- you, actually knew, you, you actually knew a little bit before that that it was coming down the pike. You just never knew when because uh, Jerry had started his uh, affection and affinity towards uh, Tim Floyd. Tim Floyd earlier than that. And, uh, you know, he always kept in contact with him. And 
Tim treated us royally when we go to Iowa State. Jerry would get tickets to him. So he always had that connection there. But, you know, Tim's a smart guy. <laughs> he, he doesn't want to come into the hornet's nest that is the Chicago Bulls. And he kept telling Reinsdorf and Krauss, let this die on its own. Uh, and Tim was a very successful college coach. And uh, he had other opportunities for himself that he ended up um, not taking advantage of to go, to go with the Bulls. But no, this was in process for a while because of the tensions between Jerry and um, Phil that had eventually took place over the course of their relationship and their time together. Was there a straw that broke the camel's back moment between Jerry and Phil? You know, I'm going to spend time with that. You know, we've we kind of talked about this, and uh, I alluded to the fact, and, and it is true. I, I gave the example of uh, uh, Carmen Policy and the George Seifert uh, when I read that, uh, and it always hit me that it was true that they wore each other out. Uh, but Phil details this in his book, Eleven Rings, uh, about what really happened and, and uh, where the fishers started with them and you know i just shared uh, i think it's pretty important to get the information out there and it's public knowledge but i'm just putting it together for everybody and it goes back to the jordan rules which came out in the 1992 and the 90 to 91 season and that book drove jerry kraus crazy and phil tells the story of jerry coming into uh, his hotel room or his office, and he had transcribed and it pointed out 176 lies and wanted to go over him with, with Phil. And Phil said, Jerry, you're going to let this rule your life? you got to let this go. And we're going to come back to the theme of letting things go in terms of talking about the ending of the Bulls because that's sort of a, a Phil Jackson philosophy that he's um, bought into in, in his life just to deal with the complexities of, of life. <clears throat> but during his time, Jerry's looking for who was the source. You know, we spent time on the sources, multiple people. The fact that Sam Smith was embedded within the Chicago Bulls organization, uh, he was friends from the owner on top down. But Jerry uh, accused Johnny Bach of uh, being the leak and he never let that go and that created tension and dissension within the ranks and then later um, as there was a player you remember this player and he wouldn't be a popular player in today's game but Jerry was always attracted to big guys uh, and I can't tell you how many stiffs he sent me to see <laughs> um, not that this guy was a stiff but his mobility is questioned just because of how tall he was and it was George Mirasai remember that player the Washington Bullets Big George was he's like 7'4 he was a handsome seven, devil something like that yeah, he really a had a nice touch around the basket had pretty good hands and had trouble moving um, and Jerry brought him in for a secret workout and he, he uh, accused Johnny Bach of being a leak and Washington Wizards ended up uh, picking George in the second round in the draft. And that created further tensions so that 
And, and it wasn't true, the, the JB. But this is how Krauss's paranoia uh, worked against him and created this harmony. And as Phil states in his book, the tensions between Krauss and Bach ended at a boiling point that make it difficult for us to work together as a group. And so um, Phil had to let the Johnny go. And that really started the break and the crack and the, the foundation. And as he says in his book, Johnny's departure had a dispiriting effect on the staff and the players. And it created a crack in my relationship with Krauss. So you're going back to Johnny was let go after the 93, 94 season. So from that time point was where you saw it develop. And, um, then Phil talks about their philosophical approach to management and how it differs in the book. Um, PJ style of leadership, he views himself as being open and transparent. Uh, he viewed Krauss as being closed and secretive and harked on his lack of skill as a communicator. At all times, Phil's talking about how he respects Jerry's basketball acumen, but pointing out some weaknesses that when I talk about wearing people out, now you're getting a feel for how, how he's feeling. Um, we talked about what happened after the 96-97 season in terms of Reinsdorf putting a kibosh, which an owner has a right to do. You know, And I said this from the beginning, what you can't separate Reinsdorf and Krauss, even though Krauss takes a lot of abuse. Uh, you know, Ryan, Krauss was working for Reinsdorf for a number of years, and up from 85 to 2003, 18 years. There were people in his management group that wanted to get Krauss out. He resisted that. Michael's goal was to get Krauss fired early. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, so Jerry always stood behind. Uh, Reinsdorf always stood behind Jerry Krauss. Which, which but, leads me to this, though. So also, well, let, me, let me stop you for one second, because I had in my sure. notes, Phil and Jerry, comma, Jerry. A lot of this could have been nipped in the bud had Jerry Krause been more proactive in, in trying to get things underway. But he allowed this thing to more unravel and probably doesn't share in as much blame as he should with regard to the breakup. Well, you mean you mean you said Jerry Krause. But you I mean, Reinsdorf. I meant Reinsdorf. Yeah. Yes. So I just want to clarify that for the, for the casual viewer. Well, he tried to get both of them to work it out. Because what were we doing? We were successful at the time. We were winning, right? And, but, yeah, you could say he shares blame, but when you look at it, the longevity, and I'm getting to that point, uh, we'll deal with that concept. But I think it's really important to talk about Jerry wanting control of the team back in his mind to do what a general manager is charged to do. Not only be concerned about the present, but be concerned about the future. But we have an experienced team like us, like we did with Michael Jordan and the cast of characters. You have to go for it. You have to go for it every year because it's hard to come back to this level. And it's a level the Bulls haven't been able to come back to in 20 years. It's the, the level the New York Knicks haven't been able to come back since 1973 in terms of winning a championship, but they did get to uh, a finals in, in the, in the early nineties. And that's, you know, really good to do. Um, 
but so that's a natural tension that exists between a GM and a coach because in, in a lot of people's minds, Phil obviously had a control of the team and, and his way. And you saw this at, when he went to the Lakers and he kicked uh, the great Jerry West out of the, the locker room, but he's always trying to protect the team and the, the privacy and autonomy of it all costs. He, I'm a part of the organization, and but in terms of the core unit of the team, I'm not a part of that. And Jerry was the head of the organization, had a vision for what the team should be. So that entered into the element. I already mentioned to you the 96, 97 contract issues, but where Phil's trying to get paid commensurate to Chuck Daly and Pat Riley. And he says, despite my record, Krause had a hard time seeing me at that level, and negotiations fell apart. And then lastly, as we go into the last year, after Reinsdorf goes out to Montana and signs a deal, you have the uh, before the season starts, you've got the the press in uh, for the uh, the preseason press gathering. But around that time, Jerry goes into Phil's office and publicly states, I don't care if you go 82 and, oh, you're not going to come back. And Reinsdorf would later say in an article, I think I shared with you, that he admonished Jerry for saying that because he was out of line and, and making that type of statement, not only to Phil, but to the press. Because why would you force your hand that quickly? But for Phil, that was free. So once he hears all this and that time period from being the head coach since the 1989-90 to the 98. Uh, he had issues going on in his personal life uh, with his wife, who was tired of being a basketball wife. His kids were growing up. Uh, in the year that he takes off from the Bulls, he moves to his favorite place. They always had a, a, a home and a, a, an affinity for Woodstock County. Um, you know, we know of Woodstock from the great concert in the 60s. And, and you think of Phil, it's like the perfect place for him to go. Um, but he and June went there to connect on a deeper level. But all those things came to fruition. And, and from the standpoint of Phil eventually deciding, you know, it's time for me to move on. What Phil puts that, makes that decision that it's time to move on after the, the final championship, it's pretty much done because Michael had tried to pull, put the Bulls in a corner, right? By saying, if Phil doesn't come back, then I'm not coming back. Um, and then you got the age of our players. It's been pretty well documented. And one key element you really have to look at is that was Scotty Pippen's final year of his contract. So we're going to have to make a decision of if we're going to sign Scotty to an extended contract, pay Michael his 30 plus million dollars. Uh, you know, Bulls are thought of as a, a organization that uh, uh, pinched pennies, but that's not true. Uh, we had the highest payroll during that championship period. Obviously you're paying Michael $30 million. And back then, they didn't have uh, penalties if you went over and above the cap. So we obviously could have done that. <clears throat> but did you want to get into a, a long-term extended relationship with, 
with Scotty based off of the injuries that he was starting to to have. You know, all those things came into play. Dennis Rodman, what happened to Dennis after that? He goes to L.A., doesn't last 20 or 30 games, gets suspended. I think he played, what, on the two years he had left in the game, 40, 40 games at that. So for all intents and purposes, you know, he was finished. And then you had all the the role players like uh, uh, Judd Bushler, uh, Steve Kerr, who are very important, who wanted to cash in on their success, who were able to go other places and get free agent contract. Could we have done it? Sure. We, we, we could have been able to pull it off. But then you got the lockout, which complicated matters as well. Then Michael cuts his ring finger, which effectively would have, uh, if you're trying to bring somebody back after the lockout, you know, that nicks that. Um, so it ran its course, right? You, you know, um, I, I think two of the hardest jobs in sports are, is being an enforcer, <clears throat> excuse me, in the National Hockey League, and also being a general manager who's got to make that decision on do we mortgage the farm for one more shot and the answer is normally yes but the the repercussions from it are, are severe and we've seen teams that have gone one year too long with players I didn't have a problem when they called it off I, I was good with it because my biggest issue and, and you know this better than anybody you mentioned the core guys but I was always concerned about the next level of players aside from Tony Kukoc did you have the supporting cast that you were going to need. Now, granted, it's a 50-game season, but did you feel like you had the supporting cast to get you to where you needed to be to compete for the championship? Uh, you know, yeah, you could say if we made the decisions based on MJ coming back, <laughs> based on PJ coming back, that we would have been able to put together a core that could contend for a championship. Uh, I, I don't doubt that for a second. But it's not. It's uh, just not that though. It, it's not just that the core guys. I don't have a problem with. I, I, I just kind of felt like maybe there was a little mileage on some players. Scotty he was a little nicked up, and anytime you're dealing with a back situation, you just don't know when that's right. going to happen again. And 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 Rodman started to show a little bit of sliding uh, somewhat. Michael had played a ton of minutes, a ton of minutes since he returned from uh, his retirement. And I just kind of felt that was more of a perfect storm where it could go in the wrong direction because of the items I just mentioned. And if you don't have guys that can step up and assume some of those minutes and some of the responsibilities, man, you you could flame out quick. Well, the the actual reality, though, is that because of the lockout that extends your rest period, which you're not normally going to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michael would have had that time and other people would have had that time to properly recover. And then you, what we played 50 games that year and they were compressed games, but you still only played 50 games that year. Uh, I, I think we would have stood a, a chance to, uh, to contend. But the reality is, is that Phil didn't want to coach us. Pitt was a free agent. So you had to negotiate and deal with that. Uh, and, 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 the, and the biggest reality is it's hard for people to let go. I'm coming back to that letting go concept. And in Jerry Reinsdorf's words, when he, he, he talked to Phil Jackson, and if I had to put a capsule on it, it's, it's time and that he needed a break. And, um, uh, you know, after I talked about the, um, 
there's two ceremonies that happen towards the end of the year. One they talk about in the in the film, in the documentary, but they kind of misrepresent when it happened. It actually, that the one where they come in and they say what's important to them about their season, that didn't happen after the championship. That happened before the playoffs, where they they, they go through the cleansing ceremony. I'll I'll call it. Uh, or the morning ceremony, and they burn the the pieces of paper that he puts in the cup. That happened before the the, the playoffs. What happened after the playoffs is when they gather together in one of MJ's restaurants and they toast each other in terms of one person picks another person. And at the end of that that gathering, Phil tells Michael, "In my mind, I'm already gone, and don't link your decision to mine." And when Phil says he's gone, then for all intents and purposes, you know, it's history. And, you know, it's, people, one thing I've, I'd, I'd like to um, kind of end on uh, with this discussion is, is to read a, a quote by uh, Phil Jackson. But before I'm going to add some levity, when I was a young kid on my wall, I had a um, Alfred E. Newman quote. Uh, Alfred E. Newman, for those who don't know who are too young, there used to be a, a magazine called Mad Magazine. And, and this and this saying, it's actually an, a, an Irish philosophy quote that they just put on there, kind of gets to why you got to not necessarily worry about things. And it's kind of humorous. There are only two things to worry about. Either you're well or you are sick. If you're sick, then there are only two things to worry about. Either you will get well or you will die. To get well, then there are only two things to worry about. Either you will go to heaven or you go to hell. If you go to heaven, there's nothing to worry about. But if you go to hell, you'll be so damn busy shaking hands with your friends, you don't have time to worry. So why worry? <laughs> <laughs> and that's a humorous way of, of, of looking at a situation. People get so caught up in worrying about this and that. Release it. Let it go. And But this is a serious one that uh, I want to bring up, and I love this quote by Phil Jackson. It was a good way to end because MJ still and people then had trouble understanding. The Buddhist teacher, he talks about, no, I'll go back to this quote. It's um, dealing with this Buddhist teacher, Pima Chandra, talking about letting go as an opportunity for true awakening. Uh, one of her favorite sayings is, only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation, can that which is indestructible be found in us? That's what I was searching for. And I knew it wasn't going to be easy. But as a new future unfolded before me, I took comfort in knowing that letting go is necessary. It's sometimes heart-wrenching, a gateway to genuine transformation. Now, that's some of his people like to say his Zen philosophical approach to life, but it, it, it really gets to the essence of the next transition in life can be greater and be something that's more as rewarding. I'm not going to say more rewarding. It's hard to be more rewarding than, than what Phil went through it in the terms of growth and uh, uh, um, who he became as a coach and, and what he evolved into even more in terms of person uh, in this next transformation but it was different and once he was able to let go then it was truly another opportunity for him to transform into something different and 
I would say that I was surprised somewhat to hear Michael still having angst and, and a little regret about not getting that opportunity because what a life he's lived. Just let it go. It, it ain't coming back. So why worry about it and just move on and, and deal and live in the precious present and try to make that, uh, the team that you're currently with the best you could possibly be. So I, you know, I think it's a, a good way for people to, to understand a little bit of what happened, given background on the discord between uh, Jerry and Phil as represented by him in his book and to give all the fans who wonder how does this happen? Why didn't they go over seven? Well, it was time and everything has a time and a place and has a season. And uh, let's just appreciate it for what is, what it was and uh move on to the next uh move on to the next dance of life you know well i personally uh, i've always kind of had that mindset and I, I never got you know in terms of graduating from any of the universities or the high schools uh i really appreciated what they did for me i didn't really dwell on it once i left that much i i know they were a part of helping me grow and involve, just like being with the Bulls was something that helped to evolve. But rarely do I dwell on it and miss that place. I'm not sentimental in that in that respect. And I think you have to be that way in reference to something like this when, when you're a fan. Uh, now, having gone through these 10 series and delved as deeply into it as I have um mainly because of these talks that we have had, it, it really um, makes me appreciate uh, that time frame and that time period uh, in my life and uh, uh, how special it was. And, and I said before, I knew that I was a part of history and living through it then. And that's not always the, the case when you are, are going through something like that, but you couldn't help but be aware of how unique that uh that experience was and it's something that I always treasure and appreciate well you know that was going to be my next question you know other than winning and being part of this this certainly successful situation what will you yeah. always carry away from the experience other than winning the championships what stands out oh what what stands out is a lot of things that stand out, you know, in terms of the collective excellence that was the Bulls organization from from top to bottom. Um, and I, you know, his timing wasn't the greatest, but you know, Jerry Krause is right that it takes organizations as well as players to create an environment to um, be this excellent. Now, make no mistake, <laughs> you can't do this without talent, as I, I mentioned earlier in the broadcast and without character. So first and foremost, the, the players are the most important. Um, but just to see the collective excellence and, and the greatness that, that existed uh, in, my, in my midst uh, was very special. Now, I, I grew up, and I really didn't realize it until I got older. Um, but I, I grew up in a household with a great man. And, and that's my dad who really had a tremendous impact on uh, the players that he coached, the, 
students that he taught, uh, the people in that community, and uh, to see a, a man with his presence and stature and the effect that he can have on people, uh, and that to be a living example on a day-to-day basis is me. It was something that I treasure to this day. Like, whenever I on a Facebook page where a lot of people in my hometown follow me, I put something about either one of my parents. It's amazing how many people make comments and uh, the love that um, he has, he showed the people uh, it's still value. And and it's a generational type of love that, that goes and carries on to their, their kids even because of what he's able to give them in whatever form or fashion. And you can kind of say the same thing about the organization that, that I was a part of and why this documentary wasn't so special because that time frame, that time period touched so many people because of the collective uh, uh, excellence of the Bulls organization and because of Michael Jordan's otherworldliness, which uh, uh, still to this day, you know, mesmerizes people. So that's one of the many things that I take away. And the other thing I take away, and I kind of alluded to, is that life, as great as it is, is also very hard and can be very difficult. And that relationships are very difficult and that you have to work to keep the peace and that uh, things are are just uh, a hair away from... going poof <laughs> you know and that's how tenuous and fragile things can be uh, because people look at this and they ask the question i guess that's the one of the biggest questions you get asked is why didn't you contend for another championship uh and, and people have a hard time understanding that and things just run this course and there are a lot of reasons that that can happen because people are flawed and <laughs> those flaws emanate into strife sometimes. So it it, it just shows you how you have to really work to keep the peace and to connect and keep things going. And in fairness to Reinsdorf, he tried to do that. He he sat down with both of them at times and why can't y'all settle this? And and I think it's, and this came up in the, um, I know an article that I read, and, and I think it was uh, Ramona Shelburne's post that I shared with you, <clears throat> is that years later, after they had left, Phil Jackson, through Jerry Reinstorm, said, see if we can get Jerry together and we can bury the hatchet and come together. And understand, and I've talked about it in terms of Phil's background from an evangelistic standpoint, you know, being raised by two evangelists, him now being a self-professed Zen Christian, but those Christian tenets really stick with him. So he's always looking for a way to mend fences that redemptive quality that you have in, in terms of Christianity, in terms of forgiveness and putting, letting bygones be bygones. But Jerry Cross wanted no part of that. And Jerry's that type of individual. Once you have a 
scorn him. That was the Rhinosaurus, <laughs> Rhinosaurus specific ways. And once you felt that he felt that disloyalty in you, and you breached that, these are harsh words in men use, but in Jerry's mind, you were dead to him. And, you know, it's a shame that he could not get beyond that uh, character flaw and say, hey, we accomplished something special. Years later, let bygones be bygones. Come together, forgive each other, uh, and, and really celebrate what we're able to create. Uh, but, you know, that just tells you a little bit about Jerry and uh, I'll just say the, the pettiness of Jerry in that respect. The one thing... The one thing that you're glad that was brought out in this documentary. Now, granted, you lived it. You've had a chance to watch the documentary. You know what was going on. And there were a lot of things that probably weren't shown. But was there one thing that was that you're glad that was cleared up that may have been misconceived leading up to this documentary that you'd always heard rumors about? But you're glad they were able to get it on the table and get it squared away. It could be an issue or a player. Oh, wow. That's a hell of a question, Michael. I mean, that's something I really got to think about because, you know, when you you look at uh, the totality of this documentary, it, it covers so many issues. Uh, there's really nothing that I don't know, but you're talking about from a public perception standpoint. I, I still don't think they did a really good job in um, highlighting Jerry's vision and the how he should be celebrated, and, and for and for the, the people who are listening, I, I they can go back and listen to these ten episodes. I'm about ready to tell them something they're probably not aware of. Well, my relationship with with Jerry got to a similar point with Phil. I was fired in 2000. And so I'm, I'm saying this from this perspective uh, and, and understand that, and that I am able to see the man's strengths, I'm able to see the man's faults, and I had my disagreements with him. And if I tell you the, the origin of those disagreements, you would be shocked at what it, how it got to that level. But the bottom line is that Jerry should be celebrated. Uh, and I'm talking about Jerry Krause because he was able to um, have a vision for a team and then be blessed with having the greatest player ever, in my opinion, be a piece to build around, selected by Rod Thorne. Let's give Rod credit. It was a pretty easy pick, though. <laughs> Third pick, you drop to him. Yeah, you're going to pick Michael Jordan, but still – we're going to celebrate Rod for not picking somebody else. Uh, from, took, from that standpoint, yeah, he could have took somebody else. He could have picked somebody else. I don't know who he could have picked. I have to go back to that draft. But the bottom line is that when Jerry got to that organization, he saw the mess that was in, that it was in, went about changing it, made the right moves to get it to the point where we can now talk about this documentary, you and me. But thousands of other people are coming together to talk about this in so many different ways. Uh, the amount of uh, 90s players that you see in the forefront, I thought there was a great uh, 
inside stuff had a thing where they had tunnel players where Mahmoud Rashad uh, had a Zoom uh, podcast. I watched a little bit of it. It was hilarious. You know, you see a Carl Malone, a Shaquille O'Neal, a John Stockton. The list goes on. Hart, Hart was on it. Uh, Reggie Miller, Barkley. I don't know if you, you've seen that. It's pretty incredible just to see that. But all that's coming about because of obviously we're in a time where uh, people can't connect with live sports and this kind of took the place of it and, and it gave people a form to live out their um, thirst <laughs> for, for sports and their life that they can't get enough of to go back and look at a great team presented in this format. You know, it, it's been a beautiful thing from, from that standpoint. Clarence Gaines, as we wrap things up, uh, talking about the last dance, you've had an incredible career. Um, so it's a simple question. Last time you had one of the rings on. Oh, last time I had one of the rings on would be, I very rarely wear them. I put them away. Uh, oh, I, 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 a, a, a guy I was, uh, uh, part of a youth soccer organization I was a part of, he, who also coaches a, a basketball team, asked me to speak in front of his basketball team, both the uh, the girls and the boys in a high school setting. And I put a, together a presentation and brought my rings to that. And that would have been uh, uh, early in the year or when basketball starts in high school. So what, that's about November? Yeah, somewhere um, around uh, there. Last year. And that's about the only time I actually showcase them. And I don't wear them. They're heavy and cumbersome. Uh, they're very special to me. But when you're able to bring them to a, a group of young people and tell them a, bit, a little bit about your experiences and share um, the special team and organization you're a part of and then let them handle the ring, that's pretty fun to see the eyes light up in that respect. So that, that's, that would have been the last time. Well, this has been fun. Uh, catching up with an old friend, having a chance to relive some great memories and uh, get your opinions and your observations on one of the greatest runs we've ever seen in professional sports, certainly in our lifetime. And, and to share with you, my friend, has been a real treat for me and I know for our listeners as well. Uh, likewise, Michael. And uh, this has been a, a fun experience uh, for me. And uh, it's really made me dig deep, go to the well in terms of uh, living a, uh, uh, in a time frame that I had put aside and to really reflect seriously on wh what it meant to me and to remember things that I haven't thought about for many years. So from that standpoint, it's that special uh, not only to watch the series, to do the research, but to come on and, and talk with you uh, about it. Well, we'll find something else to talk about. We'll get back to basketball here at some point, and I'd love to get your thoughts on how the game is approached today. You know, one of the things that did stand out to me, and I, I think you're the first person I've shared this with, the culture of the game then compared to now is different for a lot of different reasons. But you know what stood out more? Every guy was dressed to the nines when he went to the building. And I know the league tried to implement a rule a few years ago about dress code, 
But there was pride in <clears throat> being an NBA player and dressing like you were going to work compared to guys. And I see it in my sport of baseball. Who I've seen guys show up looking like they just changed the oil on their car on for a road trip. And, and the culture's changed, but, man, it was a fun time to be in the business and to see the game from that standpoint. And uh, glad we had a chance to share it. Well, you know, who, I wonder, uh, who started that? You know, uh, Michael has to be one of the leaders in terms of bringing that professionalism in terms of dress. So he was so aware of his image. Uh, but I'm trying to think of you know, I'm, magic. I would go back. No, beforehand. I'd go back to Julius Irving. Julius Irving was yeah, you're like correct. that. Yeah. yeah, you're correct. And, one uh, thing we don't have to worry about, Larry Bird didn't do it. No, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> then, now, or forever. You know, I, I bet, I, I bet, you know what? I just asked you when was the last time you wore the rings. I, somebody should ask Bird when was the last time he actually wore a tie. I mean, that, that uh, just. You look, you, you look as that when he was probably uh, a head coach. Coaching, <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know, he probably wore a tie. Hey, Michael, let's finish up on this MJ leadership thing. We didn't finish. Yes, that sir. Because I want you to be, I want you to be able to connect that. Because um, I think it's some important stuff. So you can connect that with where we go. So let's, uh, I'll start it. Uh, let me go here where I'm going to start it. Let's go uh, start again. We'll start at the uh, the Mumford effect, talking about uh, George Mumford. And you can tie it whatever okay. you want to in terms of what you heard before. Uh, so let me just go from there. Um, Phil, uh, in terms of leadership, you know, Phil ended up bringing an uh, individual in who was um, uh, Julius Irving's roommate in college at University of Massachusetts. His name was George Mumford. And he brought him in to talk about mindfulness. And um, George was also a part of the organization when Michael went out to play uh, basketball. And when Michael came back, <clears throat> and I want to go into a little bit of the impact and influence baseball had on, on Michael. You know, Michael came back as a, a little bit of a softer, mellower approach in terms of uh, his approach to dealing with people. And Phil Jackson credits that to the the baseball experience that he had. When you think about baseball and the type of sport it is, you know, in terms of basketball, it has a different pace and, and flow to it. And one of the main things I, I like to see, and, you know, you being with the St. Louis Cardinals, you can understand this really well, is that what goes on in a locker room, Versus on the bench, it's a lot different. There's a lot more conversations that, that probably transpire. And, 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 you know, given Michael was able to be one of the guys, he was able to reconnect with connecting with men on a different level uh, than he had with the Bulls. Because in the Bulls, he was basically in his own prison at, at times. You know, when we go on the road, he had the prisoners to his room. And when he came back, and, and one little thing about this in terms of, um, you know, being Phil talked about Michael coming back and being less judgmental of others and, and more conscious of his limitations. Uh, I guess, you know, when you're trying to hit Uncle Charlie, you know, that can do that to a man. Um, but with reference to... Uh, George, he, he felt it was difficult for MJ to develop close relationships with his teammates because he was a prisoner in his own room. So, so it was necessary for my, Michael to shift, and Phil felt this obviously as well, to shift pers perspective on leadership. 
that it's about being present and taking responsibility how you relate to others and yourself. And that means being willing to adjust so you can meet people where they are. You know, Michael, in a lot of his interactions and dealings with people are, he really never had to meet people where they are. People are trying to meet him where they are. So that was a central focus uh, that they're trying to um, imbue in him. So instead of expecting him to be somewhere else and getting angry and trying to will them to their place, Michael, you need to try to meet them where they are and lead them where you want them to go. And basically, Michael ended up doing this by getting to know his teammates more intimately and relating to them more compassionately. There's that word compassion. This is PJ's philosophical style of dealing with people. He felt that MJ needed to understand that each player was different and had something important to offer the team. He had to improve the way he related to others. And we look at the professional game. Coaches, they treat everybody fairly. They don't treat everybody the same. You know, everybody has their own different personalities. So MJ adopted a new way of leading based on what worked for three each player. And there were three ways he went about doing that. From a physical standpoint or a kinesthetic standpoint, you do that, you do that with your body. Uh, but in Scotty's case, it, that, that came about by just simply being present with him. So that was his leadership style with, with Scotty. And that manifested itself what a lot of people know as the Breakfast Club, which was Scotty, Michael, and Harp getting together, working out with Tim, Tim, Tim Grover before they go over to the facility and bonding in that way. And what's really interesting about that Breakfast Club, they made a, a strategic um, – decision for that Indiana series that we talked about um, in the, the final year of how they should defend. And it came from that group getting together. So I think that's important for people to understand. Also important to understand that Phil loved that kind of input from players to take ownership. And he listened to them and it implemented the, uh, the approach that they wanted to play the Indiana Pacers with. The other aspect of leadership that Michael utilized with people was an emotional one to deal with their feelings. And this is the type of approach he used with Dennis because you couldn't yell at Dennis Rodman. You had to find a way to get in his world for a few seconds. So, he, you know, only a few seconds. You don't want to get in that world for a long time. You, understand <laughs> you might get lost saying. trying to get out of it. Yeah. And then the third way that Michael would interact with his teammates, and you see this with Scotty Burrell, was verbal. And a lot of, he was very harsh. And this is more what people think of Michael's leadership style in, in terms of verbally challenging people. But what he ended up saying about Scott Burrell that probably doesn't come out in this documentary is that he knew he could yell at Scotty Burrell and that he would get it and that it wouldn't hurt his confidence at all, contrary to what most people think. And that leads to this final quote I'm going to read that, that Phil and talked about Michael and leadership that, that I shared the other day on my Twitter feed. Though at times he could be hard on teammates, Michael was masterful at controlling the emotional climate of the team with the power of his presence. So Michael, in the course of his tenure with the Bulls, evolved his leadership skills and abilities to be um, more diverse and more varied than when he first started. And it's just nice to see the evolution 
and growth in a human being. And I, I just wanted to share that with the uh, with the audience in, in terms of how you change from the first three Pete to the second three Pete. And duly noted, sir. Uh, again, man, this has been a treat for me, and I appreciate you sharing your time and your thoughts with us. And uh, may you stay safe, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. All right, Michael. Thank you. I enjoyed this, and uh, I, I think that this podcast, uh, this last one, will people will enjoy it. I, I think they'll, they'll they'll pick up a lot. I, I really do. I spent a lot of time with it. Well, I, I know I could tell, and I enjoyed it as as much as anyone. Uh, so let's stay in touch, my friend. He's Clarence Gaines. Right. I'm Mike Claiborne. We thank you for listening to ClavesOnline.com.